Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. Happy New Year 2023. We hope you are all having a wonderfully relaxing and safe holiday. And today we revisit an interview we had with one of our most favorite people, Zen Buddhist priest Karen Mazen Miller. We're always so thrilled to speak with her. So today marks the beginning of a new year, and in that spirit, we discuss with Meizen the powerful practice of the beginner's mind. Our friend Meizen is a gift, and we are so happy to be able to share that gift with you. So welcome, Meizen. Good morning. Um, it's so nice to see your face. Oh, <laughs> Well, I really, I don't know much about that, but it is nice to see you too. It is nice to see you. I like your green. Oh, I like green. That's a great color. It is the color of growth. And that's, um, lately I've been mourning how we've lost so much green. Uh, certainly here in the garden and, and everywhere, it's uh, pretty shocking. Not surprising, but nonetheless shocking how brown and lifeless things can be. I went out and watered our succulents this morning. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. They're so resilient. And I was talking to them. I was thinking my neighbors are like, who is she talking to? You're talking to the plants? Yes, I was. Well, that's really a beautiful thing. And that's a very um, profound thing. When I first moved here, I used to joke that the only thing I'd ever grown was mold on bread. So I was way outside of my comfort zone. Um, I knew that I needed to do something and it was the obvious things were clear, you know, what I, what you do in a garden. But beyond that, I would just spend time in it. And oddly, it seemed as if the plants would tell me what to do because it would just occur to me what to do. And then also what was so helpful is that, you know, when you're doing something very small doing something that just seems like a detail, like I'm pulling this one weed. I think I can probably do that. And then there's another one. <laughs> and then there's another one. And before you know it, you know, you've, you've actually done something worthwhile. But it certainly wasn't anything that you knew how to do or even intended to do. That's actually the nature of what I said that we could talk about today. And that's what in Zen we call the beginner's mind. As you said that, I was like, oh, well, this seems like a perfect uh, entrance into the beginner's mind that you had said we'd talk about. Yeah, beginner's mind. Actually, when I suggested this, I thought that we were as a culture, you know, and in, as a point in time that we would all be resuming kind of a normal routine. But it would seem to all of us as if we were beginning because of the interruption. And now it may be even more apt because of what's been changing uh, with the pandemic and what's been 
you know, returning, we really don't know if we're at the beginning or at the middle or at the end of, of anything at all. And that kind of realization that there's no beginning and no middle and no end, you're always just right where you are, that is really the perfect condition for practicing what we call beginner's mind. That's the mind of a beginner, you know, and a mind of a beginner, a beginner doesn't expect or presume that they know anything or that they have to know anything or that they have to have, you know, a talent or a skill or a strategy or a tactic or even an agenda. They just show up. Beginners just show up. And um, although it's called a beginner, it's really considered to be the culmination of your Zen practice, that you stop deceiving yourself by believing that you know what you're doing. (laughs) We don't know what we're doing and we don't know anything. That doesn't mean that we can't function really perfectly according to what's required and what's appropriate at the moment. When you had mentioned a beginner's mind, immediately in my head, I thought of the beginning of something. And I thought of when I'm starting something, my ears are open and I'm listening so intensely and not talking as much, just trying to get information and get my bearings, listening to people. And if I could be in that place more often in life as an advocate, as a parent, that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is because that's really the flashpoint of creation itself, you know, it's not as though we're sitting in the middle of a roadmap and that the course is laid out for us. You see, that's just a coping strategy we have for the uncertainty of life. Well, I, th- I know where I'm going. You know, I know what my goal is. I know where I want to get, you know, all of these devices that we have for really managing the inherent, you know, uncertainty or unknowability of anything. Um, but it is interesting that you talk about your ears being open because that is the way we describe the beginner's mind. The beginner's mind isn't a closed mind. It's not a cynical or jaded or disappointed. It's completely open and free of judgment. A true beginner doesn't expect anything, certainly not of themselves. And an open mind hears. And also has something that oddly is considered a benefit in life and in our practice. And that is doubt. You know, to really doubt. It's not just a place of vulnerability, but it's really a very true thing to say, I I just am not sure. You see, when we say that, it sounds like perhaps we're betraying ourselves because we're showing a weakness or, you know, we're supposed to really have an opinion or anything that's rock solid, you see. But to say, I'm really not sure. I don't know. I'm not certain. Let's wait and see. Let's give it time. Those kinds of things are, frankly, life-affirming and life-validating. And they're healing. They're very encouraging to others. 
it's comforting that you say that because I think for the last month, that's how I felt because, you know, it, we did feel like everything was returning and now we're back at the place where we were and we're beginning the school year and Liam's too young for a vaccination and the schools again are trying to figure things out and it feels like you're in like jello. <laughs> You know, it feels like you're just like, I always think about the the caterpillar before it becomes a butterfly. And that's what it's, that's what it's felt like, because I I don't know, I feel like I don't know anything. You know, I, I think back to our conversation about being present and letting uh, each moment be that moment and not carry past moments with it. So I've really been using that when I think about our approach to this new, as you said, new beginning, because it is new, it's so unknown, to not let everything that's happened in the last year influence our decision. But it definitely feels like, boy, I just don't know anything. Like, I just feel like I'm just, I'm really working on just, all right, let's see what this is. Let's see where we go. There, there can be a sense of community in that as well, because no one knows. No one has the slightest idea. You know, everybody's in the same position. And no one's prepared or ready or uh, has any insights. You know, nobody can predict. And in a way, that's a unifier, if we can admit it. It's really a unifier. Suzuki Roshi, who was a, a Zen teacher in the 20th century, he's the one who actually made famous in America the phrase beginner's mind. He also said, not live each day as if it's the first, you know, live each day as though it's the last. And by that he means it's not preparation for anything. We have this tendency to always think in terms of this, of the future impact, you see, and we get very much caught up in decisions being right or wrong and the time being, you know, now or later and where will this lead? And, you know, it's a joke, actually, at least it was, you know, years ago when I was in the job market, the question, where do you see yourself in five years? And the truth is, if somebody has spent their time conceiving where they are and how things will be five years from now then have they ever actually been present to anything at all? You know, not every moment is in service of some future goal or ideal. And like it or not, this um, global experience that we have has really knocked in a way the foolishness out of us, the arrogance out of us. That's one I hate to say upside because I wouldn't want to call anything an upside now, but that's very clarifying. I've heard from people this year who, of course, you hear from people when, you, when, when we all thought the pandemic was over, <laughs> who said, this has really taught me to reconnect with people, people from other times in my life that I've lost touch with. And um, that's one facet of this. What do we value? What kind of life and world have we made for ourselves? Uh, we really can't count on this thing called the future. 
that actually can be a relief. It can be terrifying at times, but it can be a relief to know for certain that you can't control anything. Well, to make analogy to parents who have children with Down syndrome, I see looking toward the future as a major focus in a lot of parents' mind. Where's my child going to be in five, 10 years? What's my child's future uh, when maybe I'm not here anymore? Or just school-wise, what, what's going to happen? Comparing your child with someone else. Uh, is my child ever going to speak like that person? Or uh, you see an adult with Down syndrome, is that going to be my child? Is, it, you can just go over this and over this. And right, are we living in the present when we do that? Obviously not. And how much pain do you produce for yourself? It's kind of like uh, you've made all of these deposits in the bank of suffering, you know, through your, just the judging mind, the comparing mind. I'll tell you about an experience I had recently. I recently was sitting in retreat and um, I thought I might ask my teacher a question like that went like this. I ended up not asking him at the time, but we did discuss it later. And my question to him was, is there ever a time when you stop worrying? Worrying, you see now. I mean, I have to tell you that my conditions, the conditions of you know, my parenting life might appear to you. And in some sense, were completely different. You know, now you know this because you have two children. And perhaps you worry equally about both, but maybe you don't. Nonetheless, it occurs to me that worry, even in my circumstance, is my greatest affliction. It is my sickness. It's chronic. I have never spent a day or night when I didn't live mostly within those narrow, uncomfortable, miserable confines of worry. So eventually I did ask my teacher this. Now he's 85 years old. And so he has children who are in their 60s or 50s. He has deceased children, you see. So nonetheless, I said to him, is there ever a time when you stop worrying? And he said, well, I have gotten better in terms of releasing some expectation, he says. And if you really look closely at what your worry is, you'll see that it's all tied up in expectations of what, really? What you think would be good, what you think would be best, what you want to have happen so you feel secure. You, you feel secure. You feel hopeful. The expectations of what has to happen so that you can be freed in some way from the, the straitjacket of your worry and concern. Concern is actually a very benign word because when I experience this, I know that I'm causing myself pain and that I'm causing other people pain because I speak, act, react, and think from the standpoint of what's not possible. What's not going to happen and how I will feel about that, you see. 
So that's really where we have to, I think, as human beings, first, we really have to always turn, reflect back on ourselves. Say, what can I do to liberate myself and at the same time others from this constant grinding judgment and fear that I serve everyone. I mean, I really do hand it to people. There's hardly a thing I can say to people that I love that doesn't betray that my real motivation is my own fear and and doubt about them. So I think in a way, we're all there. We're all in that place. And once again, I'll turn to you and say, just know that to the beginner, which you all, you both qualify as beginners, you know, I'm on the way to becoming a beginner. I want you to know. If we stay right here, here, you see right here is this, we could call it calm or we could call it stillness. Only my mind, my thinking mind is moving in any moment. Right here, it's still and it's quiet because even though there's sound, you know, even the sound of my voice, or I can hear the, the buzz of the air conditioner or a dog barking or traffic, even though there is our sounds, if my mind is quiet, then this is very still and calm. No one's judging it. No one's interfering because that one who disrupts is always me and my thought pattern. And I go to it. I really have to tell you, if I wake up because the sprinklers went on, you know, at 5 a.m. in the morning, what am I going to think about? I'm going to go right to that worry spot, you see, and start working that again. And uh, I'll tell you, if I wasn't a parent, and if I didn't see my own fear and what that causes, I don't think I would have sustained my practice because I can see immediately and I know, you know, thoroughly how much trouble I cause and hurt I cause just by virtue of that. So return to this spot right here, return to this present moment and confine it. Don't make it fancy. It's just what's in front of you. It's just what's in front of you. That's all there ever really is. And that's where you place your faith and your trust. This moment determines the next. So fill consciously. Use that moment and allow that moment to be as it truly is, which is undisturbed. You know, you have to disturb the peace. So... That's why I practice. And that's the point of being a beginner. Beginners are wide open. The mind is wide open. They're there to absorb. And they have questions. And they're not certain. And they take guidance. They don't know what they're doing, but they do the best they can. You see, there's tremendous power in that. Well, in our conversations, because I listen to our conversations and from each different conversation, like our first one was, was about that being present and not bringing moments that aren't really in 
in that. And that was so empowering and integrating that into when I would do something or feel something or or think something because, you know, the truth is like when you're dealing with the school, which seems to be one of the challenges that I think disrupt my peace the most. Um, it was just this summer that I realized because of a situation that had happened, you know, Liam, we're always pushing him to work really hard to rise above whatever errors the school will make or that they have made. And this summer was no ex- exception. But I had a moment where I just sat in all of that emotion of being right there. And I, and it was, it was all driven by fear. It was fear of what can they do if Liam fails, concern with uh, how are we going to be prepared? What It was just all of this stuff and it really felt horrible. And Liam <laughs> works really hard. He's so wonderful. And I'm like learning to be present with him, with him, which is some, one of the things that you really helped me find with him. Cause there's so many gifts. I mean, he has such a gift of being present that it just took me now he's 11 because he, he throws these bears and it's very, very soothing. And I think like, you know, you have all these different toys that the world presents and then you're, then you, you buy because it's like, oh, this is soothing. But this is Liam flipping his bears for that same thing. If all of a sudden this was a thing when people would buy it, maybe I wouldn't, I wouldn't be concerned with how does this look? What is this? But, but people are always trying to soothe themselves. I try to soothe myself. And I sat down with him for the first time, for the first time, because I think I really looked at this habit that he does with concern, with fear of what does it mean? Or can't there be like a more age appropriate, like, you know, but I don't do that to my daughter ever, ever, ever. And we, I started to throw the bears with him and I was like, oh, this is so relaxing. They're nice and soft. They're soft. <laughs> we play. It's like a focus. It's it's wonderful. You can't help smiling. Smi- right. And then it becomes a fun game. Can we like hit them as we throw them? Can we connect? Which is, ob- can we connect? And so I got to the point that this summer, I just was like, you know what? No, we're not going to do what we do every year where we just like make him work two hours a day through the summer that no other child has to do. We're going to do Liam this summer and we're still going to play the cello, but Sophia plays the violin and it was so freeing. And I still have to like check in as we go. We, and now they're the whole thing with school is happening again. And, you know, I have to check in and say, no, this is, we're just going to work really, really hard to be right here. We're not going to overcompensate for how we think someone's going to fail our child. We're not going to try to make it right, which is one of my really big things is, I've been working on not trying to make everything right. And it has been great. It's been a gift. That's a beautiful story. You know, and I, I, frankly, I I always had to, I still do. I still have to allow myself to have fun, you know. And our children really are always trying to bring us into that place, you know, their place where just by nature, it's a more spacious place and it's, uh, there's, there's great truth in it and there's pure being and deep love in it. I mean, I'm just now, I'm trying to think of something I can offer that's similar, but I remember when my daughter was 11, my daughter was 11 and she was always asking me to go to the mall. 
And you see, this was something to me that sounded like, um, uh, you know, it was a demon cave or something. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I'm not the kind of mom that goes to the mall. And you're not the kind of daughter that just spends all of her time at the mall. And I remember one particular day, I think she was in sixth grade. And I picked her up from school. And I decided that I would take her to the mall. And she didn't know this was a big surprise, but she saw where we were going. And uh, at that time, what I thought would be the most atrocious and inappropriate and you know, kind of evil uh, thing that she could acquire at the mall was skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> and so I told her that we were shopping for skinny jeans. Now, this is such a small thing, you see, but to see the transformation in her that she could be, I could let her be her. Mm -hmm. And I could be with her as she was being her. And I wasn't judging her. She didn't have to look over her shoulder. She didn't have to worry about whether she pleased me or not. You see, that's what I remember. And it sounds like, and it's true, I'm a terrible mother and I'm so stingy and just always what's implicit in everything I do is that I'm trying to control you know, who she is and what she looks like and what she acts like and all of this. And those things happen and there they are, those flashpoints. And if we see them and if we pivot, then we can open up that place for sharing and becoming more, uh, just more loving. You know, really, if you love your child, you love them as they are. If it's not as they are, it's not love. It doesn't mean you don't realize, of course, that they're going to be changing and growing and in all kinds of ways that you can't anticipate and you don't need to anticipate, but you're actually creating that reservoir of love and acceptance that is so essential to our children. And I don't care what the circumstance is, every single one of our children is entering a world that's not at all the world we lived in or live in. It's very different. And, uh, and we don't know what the stressors or the circumstances will be that they encounter. One time during the pandemic, and I might have mentioned this before, it was the very beginning when everything suddenly overnight, you know, closed and shuttered and everybody had to go home and stay there and were lockdowns and travel, you know, bans. And uh, my daughter was just inconsolable, inconsolable. And I would, of course, try, I would offer up these you know, aphorisms and, you know, kind of namby-pamby things that supposedly were supposed to get her over the hump. And she finally turned to me and said, mom, you've already had your life. You know, you haven't lost anything. And boy, that's true. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm dead. It means that I lived a life of my choosing. I took advantage of opportunities that came. I made choices. I wasn't really inhibited or limited, at least that mattered. And so all the more reason to recognize that we really are now all beginners. We don't know what the next spot will land will be. And if we can't really accept and love the people we claim to love, 
then there's no lasting good. When you talk about that, I was thinking there were two things that um, happened when the pandemic hit. We did feel like we were on level ground with everyone. The things that we had been doing for years, now parents were doing them. And there was that gift of we had an understanding of how to navigate the unknown and uncertainty and the struggle. And it did feel a little bit, it was more of a community. And honestly, for it felt like a, a bit of a win, to be honest, because uh, I think other parents, other parents had insight into what we had been talking about for so long. But when you when you're talking about how we we see and we participate with our kids, we we again, we work really hard to make sure that Liam has the supports he needs for success, because I think that's really important. And, you know, to that when he's in school, that and the terminology is the supports he needs to access his curriculum and reach his potential. And that's like just the verbiage. But how much, how important is that we instill those same supports outside of school? What are those supports? Would, how, what would that IEP look like? Time every day to play, play with him, be present with him. Like, what are those supports to reach that outside? Because the school isn't end-all, be-all. And that's such a small portion when you really look at the, the human he's becoming. We always discuss you know, as adults will be like, oh, you look at the child and they have this special thing. And you, when did we lose that? Where did that go? But is it because every time they're trying to give us that gift, every time they're trying, we squash it with where we're coming from? You know, if, if Liam tries to engage me to bring me to him, how long will he do that? How long will any child do that before they just put down their tools and say, the only way I can participate is to go where they are, you know, lose that childlike quality that we talk about so much that we wish we had, or where did it go? Or when we get little glimpses into it, we, we relish it. Don't we have fun? Like when we go out and walk, walk in the rain or do something, you know, that we see our kids do. Maybe that's, I don't just thought about that when you were talking. That's a very good question. That's a very good question. Even if when you talk about, you say, the verbiage of uh, ultimately this goal ends in something called success, mm -hmm. you see, and that's kind of a giveaway because that is carrying all kinds of baggage, all kinds of conditioning, you see. So we ourselves have to look at the conditioning that we bring into every situation because that determines our judgment and our comfort level and whether we think it's a good use of time or a bad use of time, whether it has negative connotations or positive connotations, when in fact, particularly Liam, and maybe all of our children, grown or otherwise, are co always coming from an unconditioned place, unconditioned, that beginner's place, where let's try this, or what about this, or hey, this is fun, or, or why don't we go do this? I'm the one who really, in in my parenting relationship was always setting those limits and boundaries based on what I thought was good for my daughter or what would help her or what could, you know, what was useful. You begin to think in terms of resume building and how this will look on the application. And does this lead to this kind of 
test score or GPA. I mean, frankly, that's all, that's all a lie. That's all a lie, built on a lie, you know, supported by the lie about what it means to succeed. What does it mean to succeed? You know, we have a very narrow definition of that that is built on our own experience. So yes, I'm sure that in your situation, the teacher in the house is not you. It's neither one of you. Yeah. I used to say about my daughter when she was little that, you know, we think in terms of how busy we are and how important our work is and how hard it is and how much we have to do. But the real workhorse is always the child because that child is constantly engaged, constantly active, and actually constantly trying to figure out what will turn us around. You know, what will make mom and dad happy? What will make them laugh? It's kind of sad when you think about it, you know. Uh, but we can turn in those times like you have and do that more often. That is, can never be a waste. A smile, a laugh, something truly shared with free of judgment is never a waste. Well, you can look back at your own childhood and the things that you learned on your own are the things that you learned because you were instructed that way and never allowed to even attempt or to fail in the way that was the preconceived notion of your parent. You know, I mean, obviously there's responsible things to do. There's responsible things to, to say, well, don't do that because I'll explain to you exactly that you'll burn your hand when you touch the stove. There's responsibility there, but to worry as the parent, which I know generations of parents are doing, have done, to worry and to take away all the experiences of a child attempting something and then learning the lesson from it, or you're learning the lesson of, yeah, that works too. This, uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm sure this will. The world is full of people who became lawyers because they were expected to be lawyers. And the good news is they're no longer lawyers <laughs> because it was never something that they were doing for themselves or because of some deep need or motivation they have. Granted, there are many other, you know, happy and successful lawyers, but you know, that's kind of, you see how that happens. People become, or young people become what their parents either very heavy handedly, you know, select and direct or what is implied, you know, to them that they need to do. Um, and uh, actually just this week or last week, we had a, I think a marvelous demonstration at the Olympics of how an athlete can finally stop and say, why and for whom am I doing this? You know, why am I doing this? Is there any joy left in this for me? Is there only pressure and expectation? and only judgment, it was your only pain. And um, I thought that was a pivotal demonstration to us, both as parents and as human beings and as citizens to see through 
uh, just all of the construction and the infrastructure that goes into these very idealized outcomes that ultimately are extremely painful and harmful to the people that we, on whom we place these very high expectations and relentless pressure. So for me, the medicine I had to take years and years ago uh, was the skinny jeans. That was a good day. It was a happy day. You know, skinny jeans outlived their, uh, their, their importance. Um, but what was more important is that I could make that turn, just like you described, Lori, that turn to where I could participate, affirm, and validate where my child and who my child was. We, we do fight really hard to keep them out of a box. We, we, we fight to not put them in that classroom. And I think any, any I, I try to really look at anything that I refer to as fighting because it's not something I, I like. I don't like the word. I've never liked it. But it feels like that, fighting to keep them out of a box, fighting to keep them in a classroom, fighting even in society or the perception of Liam to be outside of the box of the misperceptions. But what box are we putting him in? We need to fight ourselves to not put him in a box as well, which I can say that I have. I've, I've definitely put him in a place of expectation. And, and I do believe in that same journey of changing that perception and just lifting up all that he is, because with Down syndrome, there's so much that comes from the outside that isn't true. And I think that my goal is to find that balance of one, what other people think doesn't matter. Sometimes it can cause limits. So there is still that, how do we just support our children to be all they are without that outside influence causing us to put them in some kind of box or create that concern? So that's my journey is to, to find that, that way of supporting him to be all of him, just like I support my daughter and to, to continue to change that conversation where I'm not fighting, 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 maybe shift my focus to just supporting and not being so affected by the fear and concern. You know, I think that it's a default that we all have to think that of all the influences, the negative influences coming from outside, but all we ever have to work with is ourselves. So I would just, I think a good question for you to ask yourself all the time is, do I believe in Liam? Do I believe in him? I think that applies in every relationship. Do I believe in him? And that just seems to me to be more intimate and you know, more real than talking about support, what support might be. Do I believe in him? Um, I might have mentioned this to you before, but <laughs> we've talked so many times, I'm not sure. But I remember one time I was watching an interview with either an actor or a singer, or maybe it was an athlete, I don't know. Someone who you know, really performs at a very notable and exceptional level in whatever that, that is. 
And this person, he was someone who came from a place and a position in life in which this couldn't have been any mother's dream. I mean, it wasn't anybody's dream that he choose this path that was very, very unlikely for him to succeed at, see? I mean, the mother says, why don't you just, why don't you be an accountant? You know, Or why don't you be a store manager? Or, you know, why don't you, again, something attainable instead of this, uh, something that seems so unlikely. And in this interview, this person said that the single most important factor in his life is that his mother always believed in him. And when I heard that, that seems so simple. I have to ask myself, do I believe? I mean, with my whole heart, do I believe that my daughter's dreams are achievable and possible for her? Well, you know how I answered that because I'm the one who worries all the time. You see, it's very hard for me to take that leap over, you know, my very, I don't want to say cynical, but my realistic, you know, my practical, my grounded view of things. And so that's, again, one of those pivot places where we say, do I really believe? Without knowing, you know, as soon as you have a recipe or a guarantee, do I just believe in him? The answer has to be yes, because you're the mother and you're the father and there's no one out there. Well, there are probably a lot of people out there who will have far more belief than you might, but you need to really take care of that. Take care of that for Liam and take care of that for Sophia. In the same way and knowing perhaps that your own parents were skeptical or maybe they were withheld complete approval or something and whatever you chose to do, what a difference that makes that the people that you trust the most in your life are completely behind you. It's something only you can take care of and you take care of it moment after moment. I'm only really speaking of myself here. I have a little, uh, somebody sent me a little, um, a little talisman, a little tote. I don't know if I've ever showed this to you before. It's this little pewter piece and, and it's been worn illegible. It's, I hold it in my hands when I meditate. Okay. I just keep it right here. And it said when, at one time, believe, and I keep it right here. And I, it reminds me to purify my heart, you know, empty my head, uh, just drop everything, let everything go. And just right now with my whole mind and body in this moment, believe. And uh, I just believe, I believe in, in superstition and voodoo and, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> you know, spirit tricks and all kinds of things. I'm going to use everything at my disposal to remind me to, instead of evoking and, you know, kind of feeding my fear and indulging my worry and, uh, you know, trying to get ahead or fix or outthink or outsmart anything to just believe. I want to be like that guy's mother. I want to be that mother 
that someday perhaps someone will say, well, my mother never stopped believing in me. Isn't it interesting that we know that when that's the case, we can testify to that, you know? It's not because our mother nags us to say something nice, you know? We really know that our mother always, or our father, always believed in us, accepted us, encouraged us. Uh, that's like the flame that doesn't go out. So yeah, that's my trick. That's my gimmick. <laughs> so we have goals now. That's our goal, is to make sure that we're, we're doing that. I wanted to talk about the gymnast, though, because when you, uh, Stephen told me about that happened during the week, and um, when you were talking about her story, I thought, you know, and then you were also talking about how we try to teach our children how in that moment, what she did, she taught my daughter and son by doing so many lessons that I've, I've tried to say with words, right? Just for to stand up, to be able to have your voice, to be true to yourself, and there were so many conversations. She did get a lot of ridicule for that, but there's so many conversations that she opened up and so many gifts she gave countless people who watched her do that, how she empowered people to break out of that box, right? You know what, what I'm talking about with Liam is very similar. Liam works at a level because of this system that's there and he has to, but who is he serving? Who was she serving? And I thought it was so beautiful because she did. She just, this is my life. Well, Simone Biles made more of an impact socially and spiritually to us as a society with that decision than if she had just gone out, made perfect tens, and gotten a gold medal again. Because like, she could. <laughs> oh, that, that's what beautiful, was expected. Beautiful, beautiful athlete. But this showed so much more human qualities, so much more um, protection of yourself. Also, how to be a teammate. It's not like she, she was there cheering. It was, I mean, it has to be difficult. This decision isn't like an easy decision. But we have to always remember, too, that, that a lot of these athletes, especially minors, not in control of their lives. And it's someone, especially an African-American woman saying, I'm, I'm controlling my life at this point. So it, yeah, it was um, spectacular. It's a beginner's mind, no? Well, sure, because she, what she had to drop were not only her expectations of herself, in a way, what I also see here is how uh, our young people how we as parents and then as an older generation and also just as a country, you see, there are so many layers of um, expectation. The weight is so enormous. And it's not just on Olympians that it's so enormous. No, we can just take every, any child. It's so enormous, the weight. And it's all phony. I mean, it's all for someone else's benefit. It's complete exploitation to somehow expect that an athlete has to be a hero and a patriot, you know, and superhuman. And it's, uh, it's, it's cruel, you know. And I don't want to say that I resist and reject athletic competition. But when we do that, we take individuals and human beings and we turn them into icons. 
and their behavior is completely predicated on whether or not they fit the template of what what they've been handed and the toll that it takes the toll that it takes on well-being and self-determination and you know all of those things that we really value i thought that as impossible and as courageous as any of her gymnastics skills must have been this required much more courage uh, it's really a lesson for all of us a lesson for all of us to drop the weight that we foist onto others to somehow bring us in in this case it's just bringing us entertainment value of all things but to bring us pride and to deliver us you know happiness and satisfaction and contentment and security you know sure we do that with our athletes but we do that with our children and we do that with one another and we have to take a step back from all of that well also you were to go back to what you were saying about believing and do i believe it, it's obviously the right thing to do it's obviously when some the people have believed in in you in your life uh, you know the power of that if if you if you respect their opinion in your in yourself especially if it's someone close to you and also what it feels for the person that is saying i believe in you i mean if i truly believe in my kids then doesn't the fear and the and the worry just drop away yes you know and that's the power of of affirmations i've talked about this before too even if you're just inching your way toward wholehearted belief you know confidence and you know trust and faith you say it anyway and as you say it in that moment that you say it there's no fear you know it really does take the place of all your negative and fearful you know rumination so yes you say it often say it easily we have to practice that you see practice those it sounds kind of woo woo to say positive affirmations but i love you that's an affirmation you know i trust you that's an affirmation i believe in you that's an affirmation affirmations work they change the pattern of thinking and speaking that we have which is all habitual you see we keep going back to that familiar kind of script yeah there's no fear in belief there's no fear in love if there's fear it's not love yeah so good point well you talk about uh your practical brain and, and I'll go there as well and it reminds me of and I think it was Ted Lasso <laughs> I loved it. have you Ted Lasso do you know this show oh yeah, we it's love a wonderful Ted Lasso. show I think it was Jason Sudeikis uh an interview with him about positivity but it really resonated in my practical brain where he said yeah, I'm not going to worry about the future and anticipate and, and stress about that because if what I'm worrying about doesn't happen, then I worried for nothing. And if it does happen, the pain was twice. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I, I love that show. And I, I, what makes it remarkable now is that there's 24 hours a day continuous negativity on television you know choose your poison it's really hard and i can't 
I really can't handle most TV. I could say most entertainment, what passes for entertainment. But that half hour, you know, when you finish that, that you have just bathed in goodness. You know, it's not just that it's funny. It's that it is so light. You just feel totally different. And it's like you've just take it's medicine. It's medicine for what ails us. So, yeah, it's funny you brought that up. Well, it's such an insight in our society, too, because it is such a beautiful place to come from. But it's so different than our society that we actually laugh at it. We actually find comedy in him doing the things that we talk about with you. Yeah, but there's also that laughter, I think, comes from a deep well of recognition. We recognize the truth of it, and we recognize the commonality. I think that's a lot of that laughter is that surprise, that shock, you know, at how real it is. Now, also, it's interesting that in that scenario, he is, I mean, he's a loser, basically, you know. He's a nobody from nowhere. There are no chances. There are no high hopes. Yeah, so I think that in every way, that's genius. And it's also, my goodness, it's a blessing that we can see that and uh, share that with one another. How nice that in lieu of getting that negative of most programs that you do, it's, it's like taking a, a happy pill. <laughs> so many people in, uh, in the world are getting that. They're getting those, oh, be a goldfish. They're getting- That's well needed. They're getting different ways. I know I do. Different ways to handle a negative person. Different, different ways to approach the day when you're challenged. And you're reminded that this is also a choice you can make. And it's the choice that comes from love, not that comes from the fear, which I, I think it's so needed. Yes, yes. I, I think that you could probably write a um, textbook on the Ted Lasso way to do, I mean, anything, really, any challenging situation, any, you know, walking into any room where there's nothing, quote, good to say, but nonetheless... I mean, it's, it's just a powerful example of acceptance and team, real teamwork, like we talked about, and, uh, you know, respect and care for, for human beings, for each other. We should have WWTLD. What would Ted Lasso do? Uh, <laughs> what would Ted Lasso? That's right. more or less what I was implying. Yes, yeah. we need to do that. Yes. Because it does, you know, the one thing just the other day, Sophia was saying, is because he talks about let's all be goldfish. Goldfish have the shortest memory. And we uh, we had a situation and there was negativity. And I said, okay, well, we're going to learn from that. So I said, so what, sh what should we do? And Sophia was like, let's be goldfish. Let's. Oh, let's, she said that? Yeah. Oh. She says, let's be like shortest memory, goldfish. And then you can move move forward because we were talking about moving forward from here instead of like you said bringing so much into it moving forward from here so let's be like goldfish and forget that take the lessons learn and grow but move forward um you you talked about with the gymnast as well and i think breaking those ted lasso definitely breaks the template but my my goal going forward is breaking that template because i know i have a template for liam you know, and, and I'm 
continually trying to get this journey that I'm on with him and just looking inside to, you know, where it came from. You blew our minds when you said, Maisen, advocating is just showing up. And then in, in, I think that was almost a year ago. And in this year we've practiced just showing up and being present. And we've mentioned it many times. Yeah. We mentioned it a lot. <laughs> like we do because it's true. It's because it's a simple, simple sentence, like be a goldfish. It's a simple, simple sum- sentence to just show up. But when you do it, it does take a, a mindfulness to go, I'm, I'm going to be here. So you're being here and it takes that choice. But there's so many gifts there. And now I can look and see, you know, what kind of template. As a mom, it's hard not to, it's a challenge not to say, I'm going to, you know, for Liam, because we have this exterior, but maybe that exterior can fall away. And it's something that I think I've, I said, like even a month ago, like that exterior just, maybe that doesn't mean as much as I've given it credit the power that I've given. If people misperceive, it's not my business. It's really not my business. And you can't change them. I mean, you can change them, but not in the way you think. And setting that aside and recognizing that this is your job and it's your job to modify the conditions under which your son is living right now And the other thing that's happening, and I don't have to tell you this, is time's going to speed up for him and you. You know, your sense of where you are in things, you know, radically changes. And can you handle that? Can you allow that? Can you believe in him every day, no matter what? And, you know, this gets to a place, ultimately, all of this comes from love. There's no love if there are any conditions placed on, on, on anything, you see. Just go, keep going back to that, the purity of your, the love that you have for your son. And open yourself up to what you can do what you can handle, what you can believe, what you can accept, what you can be. Can you be okay? Can you really be okay with things as they are? They'll keep changing. I often think that um, our children ask so little of us. We're prepared to just give so much, but they really ask so little of us. Mommy, are you happy now? You know, mommy, is everything okay? You know, and it's been so seldom that I could answer yes truthfully to those questions. So can I just be happy now? Can I believe? Can I handle this? Can I be okay? Honestly, that's your lesson. So wipe everything else away and just begin again. We're always so humbled to have you on the, on the podcast. I love it. I look forward. Thank I was you. looking forward to this for, for weeks. Just it's, you were talking about, can't remember if it was Ted Lasso you were talking about or something else that was just this positivity. And that when I came into this, I thought, yeah, I'm just going to sit. It's like this bath of just breath. 
that I get from our time together. Just that reminder, that little, just to be present. It really does feel like something washes over me. The lessons and reminders and encouragements, they really do. And they'll, they'll continue to wash over me. And I notice that as they become more and more integrated into my day, it's like a little seed, I guess. And then I get this beautiful blossom. I, I see the, you know, the fruit on the tree, the, the moments of throwing bears together, the weightlessness of not bringing other moments, having to carry all of that. And it's a gift. It's such a gift. Our time with you is such a gift. And I look forward to it. Maizen. Oh, thank you. And bless you. Now, I want to remind there's one other reason to be like a goldfish. Okay. Not just what Ted said. Um, a couple of years ago, my Zen teacher saw an article that he thought was, he brought into all of us. He was going to give a long talk on it and a significant piece of research that had just been done that showed that now, because of our lifestyles and our technologies, the attention span of a typical human being, you know, before we're distracted by our other thoughts, so we can hold our attention for eight seconds, which is essentially half of the length of time that a typical goldfish can maintain their attention. So we do need to be like goldfish. And we know that their attention span must really benefit from having no memory, you see. So they're able to outlast us, you see, without any of these distracting thoughts and sensations coming up. So let's all be goldfish, have no memory, and extend the attention that we can give wholeheartedly, without distraction, to everything that appears in front of us, and most particularly, our children. Thank you. Thank you, Mazen. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Oh,